I was asked to do a series in Bermuda earlier this year. So the folks in Bermuda, you know, they really wanted me to be like gung-ho, you know, persecution and the churches, you know, you got to really do this whole evangelistic thing about how they're out to get the church, what have you. That's what the people want to hear. I struggled with, you know, how to do, how to, do what they wanted, but before I left, my son was giving me a hard time. Dad, you know, don't go and do all that gloom and doom and fear and, you know, they're out to get us kind of stuff. Come on, that's, you know, and and I was listening to him and I was reminded of something that I've often talked about, which is what a powerful political tool fear is. And there was a a recent piece I read just this week about how the church in America is largely motivated in its politics by fear. And so I was um, inspired, I think, by my son to start my discussion about the challenges to religious freedom around the world with an emphasis on one of the least obeyed commandments in the Bible. Now, we Adventists, we're big on what we call Ten Commandments, but there are commandments that are very important that aren't in the Ten. And the one that I think that the Bible repeats in various ways over and over and over again that we can somehow neglect is the command not to be afraid. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. You belong to God. So we don't have to be afraid. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned. I don't know about you folks. There are times when I feel overwhelmed. Like the waters are, uh, you know, like I, I might be drowning. There are times when I feel like I'm going to get burned. You ever felt that way? In the storms of life? But God is with you. I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I'm reminded of another way in the New Testament the commandment is stated, Fear not, little flock. It's your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Amen? So I want to start this discussion of what I'm calling the age of intolerance with an emphasis on our remembering first, before we look at all the bad things that are happening, remembering that we don't need to be afraid and we certainly don't need to indulge in a politics that is fear-based. Right? We don't need to be afraid of anybody or anything. 
Okay. Sources of intolerance. Now, it was suggested to be this uh, by someone this morning that I was really focused, that, that I wasn't entirely balanced. So let me say for the record that there's plenty of intolerance to go around, left, right, and center. Okay? There's not just intolerance on the right or intolerance on the left. There is intolerance um, in many different forms. And, you know, if we don't get to talk equally about all of them, it's not because, um, you know, any particular group is uh, somehow exempt. Okay? But, you know, as a general matter, these are the three sort of categories that intolerance fits into. Now, Fundamentalism is something we think of as being a sort of a right-wing sort of thing. But I would argue that there is kind of a, a liberal fundamentalism as well. And I have seen it in the more radical parts of the left. I was at a conference, it was a a seminar that the American Bar Association put on. I have served for some years on a subcommittee of the American Bar Association's um, uh, Individual Rights Committee dealing with religious liberty. And we put on a program called Religious Liberty and LGBT Rights, a slow-motion car crash question mark. And we had panelists who were from one of the gay rights organizations. We had someone from the Christian right lawyer who litigated the Masterpiece Cake Shop case was on the panel. We had a colleague of mine who's a Jewish law professor. And then the um, the head of our committee was the moderator, also a, a Jewish lawyer. And I was chatting with one of the lesbian activists before the program. Um, it was very clear that their goal, and she said so in so many words, their goal was to change the doctrine of the church uh, with respect to human sexuality, homosexuality, marriage, etc. And her public expression was, there's no car crash, we win, the law's on our side. So I would characterize that view as a left-wing form of fundamentalism, a my way or the highway, if you will. And here in California, um, that has very much been a risk to us, especially to the independence and, and vitality survival of Christian colleges and universities. There were a number of battles in the, in the years immediately preceding the Trump election. One of the positive things that have come out of the election of Donald Trump, uh, sometimes I wonder how I could even say those words, but I am, um, is that it took the heat off of the church here in California, and we've had a respite. Our legislature has not been concerned about abuses within the church and coming after the church and its institutions. The legislature's been concerned about dealing with, first, the Me Too movement, and secondly, the um, uh, concerns about what's happening with the federal government and 
and, and all of that. So, um, yes, we expect that we will continue to face oppressive legislative challenges from the left here in California. And so what is our strategy? Our strategy is to make friends before we need friends. And so if we're concerned that the threat is going to come from the right, then we make friends with the right. And if we're concerned that the threat's going to come from the left, we make friends with the left. And if we're concerned that each side poses unique types of threats, then we make friends on both sides. And frankly, that's what my ministry has been. As a New York Jew, I, who, you know, became a, you know, planted in this fairly conservative, Protestant, uh, Christian denomination, I can relate very well with our fundamentalist Christian friends, and I can relate very well with our very secular, liberal, ex-hippies, Jews, or whoever, lesbians, and, you know, and other friends. So that's kind of the unique role that God has given to me, is to, to network both within the civil rights community and the liberals here in California, and to network within the very conservative Christian circles as well. So, for example, the last two years, I have um, spoken, done seminars for the Christian Legal Society. And I just had an article published, thanks uh, for the Arizona Bar, thanks to uh, Alliance Defending Freedom, which is the organization that brought the Masterpiece Cake Shop case. So we've, you know, we've got ties all across the spectrum. And the case that I'm preparing for trial right now involves a Muslim woman, and we're working in association with the Islamic organization. So, we're, you know, it's, it's kind of a challenging but always um, interesting ministry that the Lord has given to us. So fundamentalism, nationalism, and secularism are all sources of intolerance. Um, I want to, you know, I want to say something about secularism. Going back to where we started this morning with the Declaration of Independence, the whole concept of religious freedom is very much established on a Protestant concept of the, the importance of the individual. If you think about, if you put this in history, big picture, Catholicism during the Middle Ages, your standing in the society depended upon your being in good standing with the church, which meant that you had to participate in the sacraments of the church. And if you were somehow excommunicated, you were persona non grata within the community as well. You might as well you know, go somewhere else because nobody would do business with you. They wouldn't buy or sell or you know, what have you. You were shunned in the community. So the, the whole emphasis was on being in good standing in the community, and it was presumed that if you were in good standing with the church, you were, you know, good standing with the man upstairs. But there really wasn't the emphasis on a personal faith relationship with Jesus Christ, right? 
The Protestant Reformation laid the foundation for our modern concepts of civil rights, of, of individual rights, of human rights, because of the emphasis on a personal saving relationship with Jesus Christ. And out of that, the Protestant, the basic Protestant concept was that developed was that neither church nor state had any right or authority to interfere between the soul and Christ. And that's where the concept of the separation of church and state really grew out of. It grew out of the experience of the Radical Reformation where Anabaptists are being drowned because they believe in infant baptism. Or they don't believe in infant baptism, rather. And they won't baptize until people are mature enough to make a faith commitment to Jesus Christ. And the chosen method of persecution was drowning. Certain logic to that if you're going to persecute them, right? And it didn't take long, you know, when they're being persecuted and drowned because of doctrinal differences for them to say, you know, who gave the state the authority to to decide who's right or wrong in terms of doctrine? It, it, it made perfect sense that, you know, the state had no business being the arbiter of religious truth. And, and so out of those experiences in the Protestant Reformation grew our principles of religious liberty, our principles of individual rights. Now, fast forward, we're in a postmodern era. Postmodern era, truth is relative. And in fact, it's beyond truth is relative because I would say in, um, you know, in, in, with the advent of, of, I don't know how else to call it except the Trump era, I really think we're in a post-truth age. Because um, we're, it's beyond, you know, whatever you believe to be true is true for you. It's very much a my way or the highway approach to truth, which is, you know, well, if you don't agree with me, you know, um, it's just fake news, right? Um, and and so it's it's really uh, it's really beyond any concept of truth. It it has really become an era where um, whoever has the power to define the truth, that's what's truth. Uh, it it's you know taking a page from not just uh, Nazi Germany but Soviet Russia. You know, who writes the history books, um, right? So we're, in, we're certainly in dangerous times that way, but here's where I'm going with this. When you abandon the Protestant foundation that our whole structure of law and rights are built on, what have you got left? How do you, you know, the left, the secular left, cares about human rights. They care about individual freedoms, you know, to some extent. But the philosophy of it, the, you know, the, the, 
the best philosophy of trying to establish a, a legal framework for rights when you have shed this notion of people as having God-given inalienable rights, as having inherent dignity because we're created in the image of God, what are you left with? What you're left with is a system of rights where I'll defend, I'll protect your rights of the minority if I would want to have those rights if I were in the minority. Okay? You with me so far? The problem when it comes to religious freedom is that from the secular point of view, the view of religion, well, there there are two primary views of religion. One is that religion is dangerous. Religion has been instrumental in so many wars throughout history, so much violence. And in our current age, terrorism is uh, motivated by religion. And so religion is dangerous. Why would we want to protect your rights to believe if religion is dangerous? But beyond being dangerous, to the secular left, religion is just a fantasy, right? God doesn't exist, and religion, at its best, is a relatively harmless myth. So why is it important to protect your right to believe a harmless myth? If it's just really a myth, then you don't, it's not about having rights. In the absence of our Protestant ethos that was at, and, and this is where I think Ellen White is coming from when she talks about America as being founded on principles of Protestantism and Republicanism. And, and she says, we'll repudiate them. Well, our culture has already to some extent repudi- uh, repudiated our Protestant heritage. And it's done so and I, and I would argue that both the religious right and the secular left have done so in different ways. The religious right, by abandoning grace in pursuit of power, have abandoned the whole ethos of Protestantism and, and have, in fact, united with Roman Catholicism in a political crusade. The left, on the other hand, has abandoned the whole notion of human beings created in the image of God, which is you know, fundamental, because they've rejected scripture and inspiration. So we have sources of intolerance on both sides, both domestically and globally. So let's take a look now. And these figures are so... I couldn't find the updated charts. I'm going to ask um, the person who created these slides if he, if he has newer ones. Um, the reason for my title, The Age of Intolerance, is because those who are keeping the statistics are saying that religious intolerance is a pervasive global worldwide phenomenon that when you look around the planet almost everybody live in countries with little or no 
religious freedom. The statistics, this capped out at 77%. The statistics are now above 80% of the world's population live in countries with little or no religious freedom. I don't know how to wrap my brain around that figure. Now, one thing that we do need to realize, though, in you know understanding what that statistic means, those who are in the religious majority in those countries may feel as though they have religious freedom, and they may have a, a wide measure of freedom until and unless they try to change their belief. And then they will find how little freedom they really have. Right? So let's take a look here. There's um, basically they divide the restrictions first into, you know, official government and legal restrictions, and then we're going to see it in terms of, of social hostilities. So the countries in red are going to have the highest level of government and legal restrictions. The uh, Soviet Union, for example, has recently in the last year or two uh, had a major crackdown on Jehovah Witnesses and taken away their property, etc., et arrested uh, some of their ministers. You see, of course, China. Um, <clears throat> I don't know if, uh, if, if, Zach, if your dad has talked about China here with these folks, um, but um, the situation in China has become increasingly bad. I'm going to talk about a few things um, later in the slides. There are now cameras in the churches of the three-self movement. Cameras. So they are monitoring your comings and goings, who goes to church and who doesn't. But cameras are becoming pervasive in life in China anyway. So now we add the, uh, the second tier of those with high government and legal restrictions. And you can see now a glimpse of of why the population figures are so high. If you you count China and India both, you've got better than what? Better than a third of the global population right there in two countries. And the United States is not regarded as having the least level, the lowest level of restrictions. Now, when we come to social hostilities, you see that India now comes into the the highest um, category. Were any of you in the Sabbath school class that I was in this morning? I'm going to wind up telling the story again, but that's okay. And uh, we flesh out the picture here. So across North Africa, you see, and even Brazil, into South America and Mexico, you have social hostilities. Indonesia is a place with considerable violence between Muslims and Christians. Now, part of the story that you need to understand, yes, the persecution of Christians is very severe in parts of the world, but it's not just Christians. The Yazidis are a Muslim offshoot. They're regarded as heretics. ISIS was especially fierce against the Yazidis Yazidis and persecuting them and enslaving uh, their women. And uh, 
I think you know what I mean by that in terms of um, uh, the treatment of women. Pakistan and other countries have laws against blasphemy. Um, but the story of Asya Bibi is, is interesting on several levels, in part because it highlights the importance of you and I sitting here in a church that is very remote from Pakistan, and yet the influence that the American people have had. This woman is now in Canada. Uh, she's in hiding because, uh, you know, they're still wanting to kill her. She was a peasant woman who uh, got into a little uh, argument when she was literally getting water at the well. And she was accused of blaspheming the prophet, um, which is uh, doubtful that she ever said anything amiss. She identified herself as a Christian, and she served many years in prison. She had been convicted and sentenced to death. This was one of the government officials who spoke out against the blasphemy laws and against uh, her prosecution. And um, he was told that if he continued the campaign against the blasphemy law, I'll be assassinated, I'll be beheaded, but um, he would not be deterred. And he wasn't until his own bodyguard shot and killed him and was hailed as a hero, by the way. Um, Russian court, notice the date, this is current. Russian court sentenced a Danish Jehovah Witness, Dennis Christensen, to six years in prison. One of the harshest verdicts in years against a Western citizen. Um, But note, uh, from the Washington Post just a couple of months ago, the worst of the Soviet Union's interrogation methods appear to have been revived recently in the persecution of Jehovah Witnesses. Um, I don't really want to think too deeply, reading between the lines, what that means, the worst of the Soviet Union's interrogation methods. Um, But it's dark. It is dark. But it doesn't get much darker than what's happening in China Harvesting, this has been documented now by the United Nations, harvesting organs from religious dissidents. And of several varieties, um, the Falun Gong, the Uyghurs, Tibetans, and house Christians. I gather that the Falun Gong, like the Adventists, they um, emphasize healthful living. And so they are especially targeted not only because they're the wrong religion, but because they're healthy and they have healthy organs. And so, you know, the doctors will examine them and when they prove healthy, nobody ever sees them again. Because, you know, we need our organs. And if they take our organs, what do you think happens to us?
So, you know, the U.S. House of Representatives hasn't been known for being terribly effective. It actually did pass a resolution, um, as well as the European Parliament condemning the systematic state-sanctioned organ harvesting from non-consenting prisoners of conscience. Um, so this is, this is a thing, folks. This is happening. Uh, Chinese, uh, China's treatment of the Uyghurs, uh, which is a Muslim, uh, Chinese Muslim community, in the name of combating religious extremism, China has turned Xinjiang province into something resembling a massive internment camp shrouded in secrecy, a sort of no-right zone. This from the New York Times a few months ago. Uh, yeah, they have cameras every 50 or 100 yards, and they're monitoring everything. It really is like turning a large city into a large internment camp, and they're doing re-education uh, you know, Soviet-style re-education, and if you're not, uh, if your thinking is not compliant, i.e., if you continue to worship Allah, then, you know, you're subject to to greater degree of sanctions and re-education and uh, persecution. Accounts from the region pointed to Muslims being treated as enemies of the state solely on behalf of their ethno-religious identity, citing reports from activists and scholars that many had disappeared and even the most commonplace religious practices become grounds for punishment. Okay, this has stopped working, Zach. Go ahead, do the next slide. So, you know, I did all of that to kind of give the broader picture leading up to the fact that, yeah, uh, in at least 60 countries, many of them Muslim-majority countries, Christians are facing persecution simply because of their belief in Christ. And, and there really is what amounts to virtual ethnic cleansing of the Christian community in a lot of places. Um, we had a thriving church in Baghdad before the United States decided to go in and upset the apple cart. Um, in the early reconstruction period, my counterpart from the General Conference, Mitchell Tyner, went over to Baghdad to negotiate with the, with the Americans, with the provisional authority, because the church in Baghdad had been bombed and um, was you know, uh, pleading for the rights of our Adventist believers there. By the way, under um, Saddam Hussein, not to you know, um, negate... Uh, you know, his offenses in any way, but one of the things that he did right was he uh, gave a lot of money to maintain the Adventist church in Baghdad and had it renovated a couple of times. Um, so, you know, it's the world is a strange place, right? Um, but these days, throughout, uh, you know, places in Africa and the Middle East, Nigeria is a especially dangerous place right now. Um, Somalia, Sudan, 
for Christians. Uh, you know, there's just a lot going on um, where Christians are, you know, the, the Christian community in Iraq has been decimated. It's been there for 2,000 years and other countries as well. Okay, this is working again. Um, I call this a before picture. I, I, I don't know if... There probably are after pictures somewhere. I haven't seen them. I don't recommend them. But, you know, here's the thing. When we hear about these atrocities, we somehow think that these are being perpetrated by people who are not like us, people who are barbarian. They never came out of the dark ages. You know, we, we have a way to somehow say, well, you know, that's just uncivilized. That's not us. And, and notice in the top left corner, what do you see? See children, young boys, right? And we think... How can this be an age-appropriate activity? This is what you want to teach your children? But this is our past as well. Whole families came together, mothers and fathers, bringing even their youngest children. It was the show of the countryside. A very popular show read a 1930 editorial. When I was in law school, we fondly called it the Raleigh Snooze and Disturber. Still going strong when I was there. Um, Men joked loudly at the sight of the bleeding body. Girls giggled as the flies fed on the blood that dripped from the Negro's nose. When Brian Stevenson was interviewed on NPR after the opening of the, what are they calling it, the National Peace um, Museum, it's the Lynching Museum in, in Birmingham. I'm gonna, I'm gonna go with the Adventist group later this fall, Lord willing, to see it. But he did a long interview on NPR when it first opened, and he said something that shocked me, that I certainly had never crossed my mind, that America is a post-genocidal nation. Um, and, you know, and, and he was speaking, I think, primarily in terms of our treatment of Native Americans. <clears throat> so, um, I'm not trying to in any way lessen the atrocity of what is being done, you know, in the name of the Islamic religion, you know, in terms of, you know, the beheadings and all that we saw from from ISIS. It's it's horrible. And it does shock our conscience. But I I think that we we just need to be adults about understanding the nature of sin and human nature and you know, and and being realistic about our own history as Americans, even as, you know, we struggle to um, champion and uphold 
the best values of what America stands for, right? You know, we can't do that in some kind of patriotic blindness without recognizing our own failings as, as, a, as a nation. I think it's important that, I think these values are, are marvelous. But if we don't recognize how we've fallen short, then I think we're going to fail in our efforts uh, to champion them and to uphold them. This slide is a little bit out of date. Um, I want to say a couple of years. But yeah, there's still lots of attacks on Christian churches. Boko Haram, of course, is active in Nigeria. So um, that's a country that's torn apart. And the government is largely sympathetic to Boko Haram and the Nigerians. So it's very difficult to aid the Christians there and to, to work for peace. So I'll tell you the story I, I, I told in, in Sabbath school here. India is a place, uh, not so much of legal restrictions, but um, social hostilities against Christianity. Uh, there's been a, a strong rise of Hindu nationalism. On the left, you see where there was a church that was destroyed by the Hindu nationalists and uh, pictured there... On the left is my friend and colleague James Standish with, I'm not sure who's there with him. When he went to visit in 2008, the group was worshiping uh, under a tree. Um, on the left was the head, uh, was the pastor's home that was destroyed. I've heard James tell the story a couple of times. Hindu nationalists went in, they literally butchered both the Adventist pastor and the Baptist minister. They left their hacked limbs scattered in the town square. It's pretty horrific. Destroyed the churches, destroyed their homes. James went from the general conference, and when he got to India, he went to the consulate in that area, and uh, he met with officials there and asked them for any information they had about this area. And, uh, and they confessed that they really didn't know very much because it was unsafe and none of them had, had actually been there. And, of course, they asked him, please, uh, you know, when you, would you come back after your visit and give us a report? <laughs> so it wasn't safe for them to go, but they were happy to have him go and report back. And he took some local Indian officials from the um, uh, the local union or conference or whatever with him. They go and they worship with the Adventist believers there in Arissa. And after the worship, they introduce themselves. And, you know, James says, I'm here from the general conference. Your world church is very concerned about, you know, what you've been through. And, and we'd like to help. Is there anything we can do to help? And James has a very gracious uh, manner about him. He's a very gregarious person, very sincere. And as he tells the story, the head elder looks at him and he says, we have God. We don't need anything. 
And that has been a challenge to me, you know, because we have so much. And I wonder whether our hold on God is the same as what they have. I, I know I, I have too much anxiety, so I know my hold on God can't be quite the same that they have. But, you know, the practice of law is crazy-making. It is. Trust me. Deadlines constantly. And a thousand ways to, to mess it up constantly. Believers, Protestants in Mexico. This is not just over there somewhere. This is right here at home, if you will, in our hemisphere. Our neighbors to the south. There has been a lot of violence over the years between Protestants and Catholics. Persecution has a face. So... The new normal, as we said this morning, the new normal in religious freedom is my way or the highway. And we see that both from the left and from the right. Now, it's it's true that Adventists don't advocate for laws dealing with abortion, even though we are morally... I, I, would do, I would express the official voted position of the Adventist church as morally pro-life and legally pro-choice. Because we don't discipline our own members for the difficult choices that they make, whether you know we agree with them or not. And we don't urge government... Um, one way or the other. But when we're starting to see extreme punitive laws that really reflect the harshest Roman Catholic view that the fetus from the moment of conception deserves the full rights of personhood and can't be harmed in any way um, without being guilty of murder and, you know, ultimately subjecting people to the death penalty, this is a very um, harsh and troubling development. It's certainly not the historic Protestant view. When Roe v. Wade was first handed down, the Protestant leadership was very accepting of it. It was only after they were recruited by Roman Catholic political operatives uh, to join in... Uh, you know, in a political coalition, that they began to see the power of the abortion issue as a political weapon. Because initially they weren't particularly concerned about it. What concerned the Protestant world, and I, I just kind of hinted at this this morning, was the early decision out of a federal court to deny tax-exempt status to a segregated Christian school. 
that decision was handed down in the mid-1970s. Now, you know, today it's hard for us to, to, to understand what was going on back then because, you know, we all heard the case of the baker. Christian Baker, and the laws say he can't discriminate in selling a cake, doing a wedding cake for a gay couple, and we're like, well, then how could a Christian school be segregated on the basis of race? So if we, if we go back a little bit, when the Civil Rights Act was passed in 1964, it was primarily dealing with employment, but when it came to what we call public accommodations, businesses it could not discriminate, on the federal level, it was really targeting businesses that affected people who were traveling. Restaurants, hotels, um, that sort of thing. So the notion of, you know, segregated, you know, like the Green Book, if, if you saw the movie. Um, so people in traveling from state to state, they would be able to obtain services. It wasn't every business. But the, so back in the 70s, the states had not yet, most of the states had not passed public accommodation laws that required businesses not to discriminate. It was perfectly legal. The response to Brown versus Board of Education desegregating the public schools was that the Protestant community started lots, literally thousands, tens of thousands of private white Christian segregated schools. And they were happy with the live and let live as long as the government stayed out of their way. But when the government came after them and said, well, you can't be tax exempt, even if you're a religious school, because of your racially segregated policies, that was too much for them. And they were determined to organize for power at the federal level. And that took place beginning in the late 70s. And here we are decades later. So, you know, initially, they threw their weight behind Ronald Reagan rather than the Baptist Sunday school teacher who wasn't conservative enough for them. Politically, anyway. Um, And, you know, we've come to a place where the effective weaponizing of the abortion issue has now led to the place where um, the the Christian right political community no longer has a place at the table. They own the table. Many of the leading positions in our government now are held by members of the Christian right. And of course, I mean, it's, it's, it's ironic that it seems as though it's it's nobody's tried to put a Protestant on the Supreme Court for a long time, but somehow conservative Catholics pass muster. Um, you know, the liberals will put Jews or or in you know some cases Sotomayor uh, is Catholic, uh, but we have uh, you know dominance of Roman Catholics on the Supreme Court, and. Um, 
we have both the separation of powers and the separation of church and state being uh, under constant assault in our country. This was just a few months ago, right? Sri Lanka, church destroyed. This is still going on in Burma. This picture is of the fires taken from across the river where the army is destroying the um, villages of the Rohingya Muslims. And you will recall that the current president in Burma is herself a Nobel Peace Prize winner. Very, very challenging situation there. The army still has an awful lot of power, but she's been unwilling to to take them on on, on this subject. Um, the last thing on our slideshow is a, about a three-minute video, and Zach, I'll have you punch that momentarily here. Um, the per, uh, a long-time colleague and friend of ours started an or she. Uh, she started initially as a staffer for Congressman Trent Franks, from Republican from Arizona, and she, under Trank, uh, Trent's leadership, established a International Religious Freedom Caucus in the U.S. House of Representatives. She's gone on to start Hardwired Global, and the work is to bring Muslim and Christian people together, activists together, to work for religious liberty and for their mutual civil rights in places like Iraq, in places like Nigeria and Sudan, in some of these really tough spots. So if we're going to talk about the age of intolerance and how pervasive intolerance and persecution is globally... I wanted to leave us with a positive image of somebody, you know, an organization that's making a difference. Now, my my caveat is that this was initially produced as kind of a, a little fundraising blurb, but I don't think that'll trouble you. The story that she tells here, however brief, is I, I always find very inspiring. So see if you can get... Oh, are we... I should have asked, are we we're on the Internet? Okay. Yeah, the peaceful garden. There you go. Perfect. And then just full screen it. How can there ever be hope for religious freedom in Iraq, the Middle East, and other areas of the world where religious minorities are persecuted and killed. This kind of violence is all these children have ever known. In 2015, Hardwired brought together 10 teachers from across the Middle East to learn to value religious freedom. Two Iraqi teachers who had escaped from ISIS emerged with a lesson called the Peaceful Garden. When they returned home, they brought a group of children from the refugee camps together in a garden and invited them to make bouquets from all of the flowers except one color. But when they were finished, they looked back at the garden and realized that it was destroyed. 
The teachers reminded them of how ISIS had done the same thing. They had destroyed everyone except the people that looked like them. Every child was quiet in that moment as they remembered the terror they felt when ISIS attacked. Then the teachers asked the children to help them plant new seeds that would restore the garden's beauty and learn to value religious freedom and build a more peaceful future for everyone. Which garden would you prefer to live in? The one with only one color or the one full of color in life? If we want to end the endless cycle of violence, hate, and genocide, it begins in a peaceful garden. This is where we can shift the mindset from hate and mistrust to one of tolerance, human dignity, and peaceful coexistence. We've spent $3 trillion fighting wars in Iraq, and we have nothing to show for it except more violence, more anger directed at America, more terrorism, and a refugee and humanitarian crisis. The Peaceful Garden Project will train every teacher in Iraq to teach the Peaceful Garden to their students. It will make sure each child gets lessons, activity books, and opportunities to begin to learn the value of religious freedom. With your help, Hardwired will take this story and these lessons to 2.4 million children across northern Iraq at the invitation of the Kurdish government. This is why I have hope that we can turn the tide and break the cycle of violence so that future generations do not have to suffer as this one has. You can invest in ensuring religious freedom for children by planting a seed that will bring a harvest of freedom for the entire world. Visit the Peaceful Garden Project today to learn how you can plant the seeds of freedom. is now running for Congress in Virginia, out of Richmond, and uh, one of a very select group that I've ever made a political contribution to, because she's my friend, so <clears throat> for what it's worth. Um, so let's go ahead and open it up for questions on anything we talked about or anything we didn't talk about, um, anything you're interested in, discussion Go ahead. Well, I'm particularly troubled by uh, what's going on at the border. Obviously, it, most everybody else is. Um, when Senator uh, Ocasio Cortez, it just it just really opened my eyes and really surprised me that you know something like that could actually take place and and go on uh, you know go on media. As you know, as 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 factual information. I mean, it 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 just is disturbing to me because you know, not once did I hear her say, you know, like you know, uh, what do we do now, you know, or or suggest any any kind of alternative. I mean, for for months they've known that this that this was going to occur down there, and I, I know you mentioned it earlier in the earlier. Um, in your earlier talk, and and I, I believe you compared it to, you know, um, you know our 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 concentration camp, our our Jewish, our Holocaust. You know, um, although I don't really see that, but um, it 
what's going on down there, I mean, it is disturbing. But I mean, we've known about it for a really long time that it was that it was coming and that it was occurring, and it just it, I just I, I guess I just don't understand, you know, what's taking place or or what we're doing, you know, to, you know, to uh, um, to remedy the situation. So, I remember being in Senator Feinstein's office back probably about the time that I was here last in the late. 90s, probably circa 99, and there was going to be a vote on an immigration bill on the floor of the Senate that day. And I remember having a conversation with the staffer we were meeting with. You know, we as a church didn't have a particular position on immigration, but I said, we so desperately need to have immigration reform. You know, we're certainly praying for, you know, for what you guys do. That bill hasn't passed, and we really haven't had meaningful immigration reform in decades. When I was just back from law school in New York in 1987, there was an amnesty that that Reagan passed. And I remember there was a Brazilian group in our church that was doing immigration clinics and um, serving the Brazilian community, and many of whom joined the church at that time. It was a very active, active group. To some extent, there is plenty of shared blame. Both parties have failed to work together to create any kind of coherent immigration policy. The un- there's a deeper underlying issue here, which is that um, for decades we have fostered authoritarian regimes throughout Central America that have um, encouraged right-wing death squads and created the conditions from which people want to leave. And, you know, right now... I'm reminded of, you know, the old illustration we use in our health evangelism where we talk about, you know, do you want to put the guardrail up on the cliff or the ambulance down in the valley, right? You know, we want to practice prevention, um, you know, rather, and, and so our whole approach to health, you know, and healthful living is we want to pre- pre- prevent illness, not just find cures by way of the ambulance down in the valley, So, you know, here we are with a really tragic situation. Um, Europe, I was reminded by something I read yesterday, they met their tragic influx of refugees from Syria and from Africa um, by paying Turkey and Libya to prevent people from coming. So the camp that was all over the news that was bombed in Libya uh, this week Well, those were people living in conditions that were worse than what we have here. Um, And, you know, and so we see the tragedy over there. Um, But a a couple couple of observations about the current situation. Number one. Regardless of the politics, and I, you know, I'm not here to, to, to grind any political axe. But regardless of the politics, if you and I treated our kids that way, 
we would lose parental rights. It's not acceptable the way the kids are being treated. And number two, there, there is a legal regime that the administration is violating. And yes, I am going to get all choked up about it. Um, the Dolly G case, the courts established um, protocols for how long kids could be kept. Um, and I, I don't remember all the details, but we're clearly violating what the law says as far as treatment of kids. So this is also very clearly a deliberate part of our government policy that believes that by creating these horrific conditions and publicizing them, that it will act as a deterrent, that people it will deter people from coming because they don't want to be treated this way. Um, apparently, that theory is not proving to be terribly effective. But, you know, the point is, this is policy, right? Um, number four, it was a change in policy that when people came seeking asylum, that instead of you know, starting their legal case and then releasing them, that we would keep them in detention. So people who come seeking asylum are not criminal. Now, are there people who are criminal? You know, people are people. You're going to have all kinds of people, right? But there's some of them, many of them are innocent. A few of them may be less innocent. Um, people, you know, we hear the accusation that they're being, you know, well, they're being trafficked or, you know, um, well, whether or not they are coming by paying um, a mule to help them come doesn't really speak to their own character or their own asylum claims. We have not invested adequately going back, you know, from different political administrations in having a properly staffed asylum court system. So we're not able to process the asylum claims in a timely way. But asylum law is itself broken. And I want to tell you a story that I did a radio show interview that I'm very proud of with that arch-liberal by the name of Kenneth Starr. Okay, I got a couple of chuckles there. Um, so Ken Starr, of course, of you know, made famous by investigating Bill Clinton and the impeachment proceedings um, involving Clinton, uh, former president of Baylor University, dean of the law school at Pepperdine, my associate who works with me, lawyer, clerked 
with him when he was a student at Pepperdine Law School. I have run into Ken at various religious freedom events at Pepperdine and elsewhere over the years. But at the Christian Legal Society, um, they always have round tables and they serve breakfast and we have breakfast Bible studies and fellowship and all. And when I was there last fall, Sunday morning, um, Ken Starr sits down at our table and I started asking about something that he had been talking about in his uh, earlier presentation, which was his involvement with an asylum case for a Chinese uh, Christian from a house church who'd been arrested and beaten. His name is um, Ting Shui. He'd been arrested and beaten along with um, others from his church and released. But the next time that the church was raided, he was working late that evening and he wasn't there. And they were detained for a much longer period of time. Ting Shui fled. And I think he fled through Hong Kong to Thailand, came to the United States and uh, you know, sought asylum. And through every level of the courts, he was denied asylum. Now, if you're seeking asylum, the basic standard is that you have, you can demonstrate a, and, and I don't have the actual legal terminology, but, but a, a reasonable fear of persecution. That it's not safe for you to go home, basically. So his case went up to the 10th Circuit U.S. Court of Appeals sitting in Denver. I had a case in that court that we won uh, about a year ago, a Sabbath discrimination case against Kellogg's, that great Adventist-friendly company that fired two Seventh-day Adventists because they wouldn't work in a Morning Star Farms plant on Sabbath. I couldn't eat my favorite sausage patties for three years while that case was going on. It was only after we got it settled and I said, well, I guess, you know, if I use some of my legal fees to, um, you know, they've they've paid me enough to have a lifetime supply of uh, Morningstar Farms, uh, you know, Little Inks or whatever they are, the the sausage patties. But anyway, um, so... Ting Shui's case goes up to the 10th Circuit Court of Appeals sitting in Denver, and Ken Starr files a friend of the court brief. And the court says, no, you don't have a reasonable fear of persecution because you can go home and you can worship God all by your lonesome at home and nobody's going to come after you. Now think for a minute what that says about our concept of religious freedom. We thought, mistakenly perhaps, that what we're doing here today is religious freedom in community. But according to the Tenth Circuit, religious freedom is enough if you just do it by yourself. Okay, now somewhere the Bible says, forsake not the assembling of yourselves together. So if you want to be faithful, then... The court says that doesn't matter to religious freedom. Well, I mean, there's a happy ending to the story um, because Ken Starr happened to be personal friends with then Attorney General Jeff Sessions, and he prevailed upon uh, his friend 
to resolve the case in such a way that Mr. Shui could stay in the United States. So, yeah, there's a happy ending for Ting Shui and a happy ending for me. I got to interview Ken Starr on my radio show, which, you know, is probably the biggest uh, name personality that I've interviewed over the years. Um, and, and by the way, Ken is a delightful person in person. Um, he is a consummate politician, very gregarious, um, you know, very personable. He happens to be a brilliant lawyer. I've, I've read some of his legal work. I, I give him credit. As you know, I don't agree with him on everything, but he is a brilliant lawyer. And, and uh, um, anyway, so that's my report on on Ken Starr for what it's worth. But coming back to you know all of these questions, there's a lot that's broken in our whole immigration system. Part of what's broken, too, is the extent to which we are fostering in us against them sort of fear of the immigrant. I dare say that the California economy would disappear if we sent everyone who was undocumented back to where they came from. Um, Certainly, in this part of the state, the grapes would all dry up on the vines, right? Uh, You know... Relevant to nothing else, when they started putting all these grapes in through central California, I thought to myself, the day is coming when we're going to starve in California, but we're not going to care because we're so full of wine. <laughs> but the, great, the vineyards certainly are beautiful. They are, they, you know, it's just, it's, it's so lovely to see. Um, Well, I dare say, you know, having, you know, getting out of the environment of the prison and into the fields, uh, you know, would be um, healthier and happier. I have represented both prisoners and prison guards and prison nurses. And um, the prison industrial complex is, is, is another whole subject. We've got a hand in, in, in the back. You know, but bo- bottom line to me is... This is a deliberate policy of the government. Our immigration policies are awful. The oppression is awful. We certainly need to insist to our government that that you know they put their heads together and do you know a, the wall is not the solution. I mean, I think you know ultimately, if if there's going to be a quote solution, it ha- you know we've cut off aid to Central American countries because we say well if you're not solving the immigrant you know if you're sending your people to us we're not going to give you aid but that's actually making the problem worse. What we need to be doing is working in these countries for stable governments, for stable societies where you know people don't leave home unless they're desperate. It's home. You know, people want to be home. Home is is basic, and but but you know, I've read stories where you know women mothers have buried kids and they don't want to bury the rest of their kids, and and that's why they're leaving. So we've we've got to invest in making helping make life livable so people can stay home if we don't want them all fleeing here. And I, I don't think it's fair 
you know, in the polarized climate, you know, for the conservatives to say, oh, the liberals, they just want open borders. I, I don't really hear anybody saying we want open borders. Obama was nicknamed the deporter-in-chief. You know, I think we all want to have a more sane and responsible immigration policy. You know, we've also cut the... Um, I always get the, na- the number of the visas. There's a particular visa for, uh, particularly for skilled workers, like in Silicon Valley, uh, where we import... Uh, you know, people in the in the tech field. And we've cut the number of, of those kinds of visas. So, I mean, there's so many different areas where if we're going to continue to be the engine of the global economy and the leader, and, and tech is an area where we're very much in competition with China, this issue with Huawei is a very serious issue, uh, and the administration is right to take it seriously, um, we've got to be the place where we gather the brains of the world and we do it here. You know, that, that is our strength. And for us to take in kind of an isolationist, anti-immigrant attitude is very counterproductive. So there, there's a lot of dimensions to both the problem and the solution. There's not, it's not easy fixes. But in our polarized political circumstance, it ain't getting done. There's not much hope. Okay, you've waited Hi. patiently. Thank you. I'm going to move forward because that's awkward for me to be in back of everybody. Um, so oh, I could go on all day long about this immigration situation, so I'll try not to get on my soapbox because I have a very odd, diversified background with especially immigration um, at a grassroots level. I'm not a lawyer. I'm a teacher. Um, but... I've had this weird, long love affair with Mexico. I grew up with my best friend being a father, being a farm labor contractor, so I spent a lot of time with these people. Um, I worked in the wine industry. Uh, I also worked as a case manager for undocumented children um, as their third-party advocate advocating for them. I'm married to, was married to, a um, illegal immigrant and went through our immigration process to get him legal, which was torture. Um, I also have a sister-in-law who is a judge in Sinaloa, Mexico, and I get all the violence and everything coming from there. Uh, it's dangerous, and the, I have friends that live on the border in, in Nogales and Tucson, and um, it's scary. I feel like we need to be protected, but. I just want to thank you for bringing to light that we also need to uh, be conscious of those people as humans at our our border. So thank you for bringing that to light and to the forefront of our minds because I think we do get very scared. Um, And fear can drive so many poor decisions or lead us down a road of of not very healthy thought process. Um, But but there is some truth behind that fear. You know, there's there's some people coming across our border that are are not scared. But anyway, so so thank you for bringing to light that we we remember these are they're people and to look for Jesus in each and every one of them. Thank you, thank you also for bringing up the fact that maybe it's because I'm a teacher, so you get criticized all the time. You know, when you work in public service, I, I feel defensive of our police officer, teachers, and firemen, and border control and agencies. And thank you for saying that they are overstaffed. 
I mean, just stretch beyond because we have refused to acknowledge the problem for so long. When I went to my last training, as I was, we looked at the numbers and it went from like in one year, 10,000 undocumented, un, unaccompanied children, meaning they were under the age of 18, caught on the border with nobody with them, as young as six years old. Um, I had six-year-olds, 10-year-olds, 12-year-olds, 14, 16. Um, it went from 10,000 to 80,000 in one year with 62% of them being from El Salvador. So <laughs> we weren't prepared for that at all, which is how I became a third-party advocate. My cousin, who does work for a nonprofit agency, took on these cases contracted by the governor. She couldn't find enough social workers. So she was so desperate because these children were stuck in detention centers for longer than they needed to be because they couldn't find an advocate for them. So she started to get things to allow people like me being a teacher with some close training to work as their case managers. Um, so thank you for bringing that to light, that we're dealing with children, we're dealing with humans. We need to do better at the same time by acknowledging that a lot of these facilities are just overrun. I don't think, I think our policies, like you said, on a federal level or high up are, are wanting to send a message. But I know, I believe that a lot of the people there at those facilities are, are doing the best with very little resources. So we just need to recognize that it's a crisis and we need to do better. Um, so thank you for those points. Um, I also want to just recognize that I think sometimes we underestimate that some of these workers we have here now and some that could potentially come here are skilled, especially the farm laborers. I think we look at it as just hoeing weeds or driving a tractor or they come with skills that we don't have in our society anymore. It is a skilled labor force. So don't, and, um, and, and I, it just blows me away their knowledge of working the land. And, and farming that, that I teach agriculture that our kids don't have, our, our society doesn't have. It's a skill. Um, but my question for you specifically is this. What I found in my work and, and what concerns me, and I want to know if there's anything valid behind it, is a part of our questioning of the children. I had to go question the children in the detention center by phone and in person once they got released to the whoever their family was they were released to to make sure the family was taking care of them, but also to verify if the information they had given, I got their full file, was correct. And one of the things was to question, okay, how did you decide to come to the United States? How did you know to get here? And the intention of the questioning was to make sure they weren't a part of a human trafficking-type situation, but I kind of stretched it a little further out of curiosity, probably inappropriate, but... I just, you know, asked him, tell me your story. Who told you? How did you know? Every single case I had, and mind you, I probably had a dozen, not that many. It's very small, so statistically that's not very accurate. But every single case I had, they were told, and even giving starting money and directions, that they needed to come to the United States by the Catholic Church. And they came here, when they were released, they were told to contact the Catholic Church for services to get established. And they were going to them to get connected with all the services. And I just found that interesting. Is there anything that you find? I noticed you kind of made a connection between the Catholic Church harnessing 
the abortion issue, is there anything similar to that, them harnessing maybe parts of this immigration issue as well? So that's a... I had no idea where you were going to go with all of that. but I know. I'm really sorry I talk a lot. But no, I listen, I, you know, I especially appreciate getting insights. You know, I don't live in the Central Valley. You know, I don't get to see what you guys see. It's important for me to listen as much as it is to, you know, to share whatever it is that, you know, that my experience is. Um, you know, one of the things that I was talking with your dad about that, you know, I don't know in, in all of his travels if, if he's in touch with is the extent of the terror within our Hispanic and immigrant communities among Seventh-day Adventists. Um, you know, they're really people. Our policy and, you know, the threats of these massive raids that we keep hearing about, this is it's unlikely that these massive raids are going to happen, but that's not the point. The point is it's part of breeding fear. That's that's the point. Now, Ellen White made a comment, I don't recall where it is, a long time ago that, you know, that we would, the time would come and we would have less to say about the Catholic Church. And one of the things that has always been um, not sure quite how to put it, but you know, there, there certainly is a kind of undercurrent of anti-Catholicism within Adventism, and I think that it's very important for us. You know, we have a belief about last day events that you know sees the church, the Catholic Church playing a role that is on the wrong side of, of, of history. Let's, let's say it that way. Um, but I don't, you know, but, but I think it's so important that we not let those kinds of beliefs color uh, having, you know, a discriminatory or biased attitude towards people. You know, my, my son, for, my stepson, for example, started dating a Filipina girl who came from a Catholic family. And I said to his mom, she's going to make a great Adventist, right? Because I knew that she, you know, was receptive to Jesus, you know, having grown up Catholic, but that she didn't know anything. And that if she hung out with Adventists long enough, she'd be baptized, And sure enough, it took her getting a new pastor and asking her, would you like to be baptized? Sure, nobody ever asked me, you know, um, and studied, etc. So, you know, by way of perhaps a long-winded, you know, caveat, I certainly want to make sure that if we're going to talk about, you know, Catholicism, that we distinguish that, you know, there may be things that the church is doing that, that are concerning, but that we not just indulge kind of, um, you know, a a bad attitude or a discriminatory attitude. Um, Now, as far as 
I don't have any personal knowledge or experience with what the church is doing. We certainly hear there's so many variations of what I would call conspiracy theories of all sorts, whether it's that we never landed a man on the moon to the United States was responsible for destroying the Twin Towers. My brother believes that one. Um, and, you know, and so many others um, that, you know, the planes didn't take the tower. I mean, there's, you know all kinds of conspiracy theories. One of the things that I like to tell people, and, and, and I don't know if this... I mean, there are conspiracy theories around how the Catholic Church wants to take over America by flooding us with Catholics. You know, the problem is that Catholics in Central and South America are flooding into Protestantism, and they're going to do the same thing if they come here. So whether it's an effective strategy or not, you know, um, or whether that is, in fact... Now, if, if I were in El Salvador talking to a Salvadoran family that was thinking to come to America, I would tell them Catholic Charities is a very effective organization. And if you're going to get help in America, you're going to want to look for Catholic Charities, right? You know, they're the biggest and the best. So on one level, it would only make sense. You know, the other thing that, you know, reading into this story is, yeah, the church is the institution in these countries that people are going to go to for counsel and advice. And so, it, you know, on one level, no, it's not a surprise if, you know, if they're encouraging them. Now, why, you know, what? maybe there are parts of the story that, that we don't really know, you know, is the motivation to come because the church is saying to come? Or is it, you know, what we're reading in the press about how bad the conditions are and people are thinking that, you know, we can't live here and what are we going to do? And, and, and so they, they're inclined to make a change in the first place. So, you know, there's a lot of things, you know, I certainly don't know, um, And, and yeah, I mean, the, ch- the church is doing a lot of things that are very, very good in terms of, of social service. By the way, liberal Adventists are very confused by me because, uh, you know, they think that, well, if you're in religious liberty, you know, you're anti-Catholic. And, you know, I'll say to them, you know, um, we work very closely with the Catholics in the legislature because we've got hospitals and schools and they have hospitals and schools and when it comes to religious liberty we have a lot of interests in common you know not identical and there's plenty of places that you know that they're involved in a much broader legislative agenda than ours you know but we've had a very close friendship for many, many years with the Catholic people here in, in California doing legislative work. And, and, you know, so the liberals think, well, you know, they thought that religious liberty was so, you know, anti-Catholic and, and what have you. Um, hang on one sec. So, and, that's, and that's who I actually contracted with was the Catholic Charities. 
And, uh, and my response to that was, well, that's the organization I could work for to help the kids, so that's what I did. <laughs> uh-huh. Well, and they will hire without regard to people's religion. Yeah, they did. Yeah. Well, thank you for the work that you're doing. You know, I mean, my, my bottom line is, you know, I don't know what I don't know if if I have a clear grasp of of the political answers. I do know that as Christians, we need to care for suffering people. That's first and foremost. Go ahead. Can you speak a little bit about the uh, embrace of religious liberty by the Catholics with regard to health care? Uh, I know people like Laura Ingram, other conservative commentators, have uh, seemingly embraced their desire to restrict, say, family planning services to employees in certain companies as a religious liberty issue. Well, you know, it's part of the redefinition of religious freedom that it now... um, is really embracing uh, the right to refuse services. And, 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 I mean, look, we've been supportive for years of the rights of Catholic institutions to operate uh, along their conscientious basis. Um, the whole issue that led to the Supreme Court battles over, you know, the Catholic views when it comes to the Obamacare, the, the Affordable Care Act, rather, um, we fought those battles and lost here in California circa 2003-2004. Uh, because even though we don't agree with Roman Catholic theology on, for example, contraception, you know, we, it's their sincerely held religious belief. So... Um, But this has become kind of a cause celeb for uh, conservatives to really glom on to, uh, you know, the conscience rights of institutions, not just individuals. And and we support that. There is actually an institutional religious freedom alliance. Um, The director of that was honored at our Adventist, our, our Liberty Banquet that we do every year on Capitol Hill. Stan, Stanley Carlson Thies was honored this year at that banquet, and he's been a, a frequent guest of mine on my radio show. So, um, you know, but part of the problem is that there has been overreach on the right, which, you know, we're in this culture war climate, so the right goes to an extreme and the left reacts and the left goes to an extreme and the right reacts and and it just feeds into this culture war. You know, years ago I used to say that, I mean, the right and the left are largely populated but what I, what I would call like independent ministries. So you have the moral majority or you have, you know, Pat Robertson, you have on the left Americans United, um, uh, for separation of church and state. And, and they would be the talking heads on, you know, the, the television interviews and they'd go head to head and their supporters would then write them checks. They were in a sick symbiotic relationship because they couldn't exist without having the demon enemy to fight. And so really left and right have, you, you want to talk about a conspiracy, um, they have very consciously created this culture war climate and the whole country is, is the worse off for it, you know, because 
there's no middle ground left. I, I used to say, you know, we Adventists, we occupy the increasingly lonely middle because we're not the religious right, but neither are we the secular left. You know, which is why, even though we founded Americans United for Separation of Church and State, we left when they made a, a sharp turn to the left in the early 90s. Right about the time I started, I watched and, and participated in the decision for us to withdraw from that organization back, back in the 90s. Um, now, I want to take this another direction, though. So you may have seen that introduced uh, recently in Congress was a bill called the Equality Act, which would essentially give full protection for LGBT rights and exempt these rights from any of the federal religious freedom statutes, like the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. Anybody heard about the Equality Act? Uh, Some have, some have not. Well, Yeah, is it dangerous for religious liberty? Well, yes and no. Yes, it would be dangerous if it was passed. No, as long as um, the Republicans control one branch of Congress or the White House, it's not going to be enacted, period. So, you know, nobody's losing sleep over it who, you know, who doesn't like it. There's another effort that has been brewing for several years based on legislation that we supported in Utah, known as the Utah Compromise, which is a broad package of protection for both gay rights and religious freedom. It is an attempt to, if you will, call a truce to the culture war and resolve most of the worst conflict areas in protecting the religious freedom rights, for example, of religious universities and colleges to practice their values regarding human sexuality. That's very much at issue. We need to have that nailed down. Um, 30 states have no protection for gay and lesbian rights. So if you are a business owner in one of those states, you can just out and out fire somebody, you know, because of their sexual orientation. One of the things that, you know, I, I lecture a lot on discrimination law, religious discrimination in particular, and I point out, guess what, folks? Laws that outlaw discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation, guess what? They protect everybody. Why do I say that? Because we all have a sexual orientation, whether it is heterosexual or something else, it is a sexual orientation. I have seen people come to me who claim they have been harassed as a Christian, as a straight person, by a supervisor who was gay. That's a case of discrimination or harassment based on sexual orientation. So the laws protect straight people as well. So, you know, as Christians, there's developing a a much broader concept of what I call live and let live. The basic value is we all get to live together in a free country according to our own identity, according to our own values, whether those values are based in our faith or 
you know, if some people base their identity on their sexuality, in a free country, that's their right to do that. And how do we have a legal system where we can all live together in peace and minimize the, the, the conflicts? Now, I haven't seen, you know, the ink dry on what the compromise looks like. There's still details that I don't know about. Um, I'm doubtful that the compromise is going to provide protection for uh, companies like Hobby Lobby, for example. If, if Hobby Lobby said, well, we're a Christian organization and we don't want to hire gays in, you know, Alabama, we shouldn't have to do that, um, I, I think that they probably would not have the right to, to, uh, to do that. Um, you know, is it going to protect the baker who doesn't want to bake the wedding cake? Um, an early draft that was reported to me was going to have a, a small business exception in public accommodations laws. Well, what does that mean? Well, under federal law, um, I think all of the states here in the Pacific Union have pretty good state laws. Well, no, Hawaii, we go under federal law still. I have to look at their state laws again. Under federal law, an employer who has fewer than 15 employees is allowed to discriminate. If you're, you know, a dental office and you've got 10 workers and you want to fire a black, you can say, you know, I, 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 don't, I don't want any blacks working for me. Goodbye. Under federal law. It's not going to fly under state law, right? So it would be a small business exception for employers of, uh, for companies of 15 or less. Go ahead. Well, let's bring it closer to home. What if it's Monterey Bay Academy or Loyola Marymount University? Well, right. So those are, those are the kinds of things that we especially, I think that fair, it's called fairness for all. That fairness for all is really targeted at protecting, um, you know, religious, whether it's academies or colleges and universities and their right to have policies consistent with their faith as a matter of federal law. That's the kind of protection that we're looking for. The sectarian, institution, sectarian institutions would be protected, but businesses would not be protected, even if they are run by a conservative Catholic? Or So yeah, I believe that's correct. Now, let's, let's take a step back from that premise for a minute, okay? Um, I have had this discussion at times with folks who take a very dim view of the Civil Rights Act in, uh, in general. And they say, look, telling us as a business person that we can't discriminate, that is a restriction on our freedom. We don't believe in that. We think we should have the freedom to hire and fire at will. So I grew up initially in Scarsdale, New York, Westchester County, just north of New York City, and my granddad um, was a big shot in the local country club, which was a Jewish country club. Jews weren't allowed in the WASP country club, and neither were Catholics, so we all had our own country clubs. 
And, you know, back before the Civil Rights Act, you know, the, the, the white Europeans, the wasps, they didn't hire Catholics, they didn't hire blacks, they didn't hire Jews. There was so much segregation within our economy that, you know, we, unless you really have looked at the history or come out of that in some way, you don't realize how different things are. That bill was passed in 1964, and, you know, it may seem like, okay, well, you know, like if... Um, uh, if if Chick-fil-A wants to, you know, operate according to certain Christian principles, well, shouldn't they be able to do that? You know, even though it's, you know, it's, it's a, a large business. Well, how far do we take that? Uh, do we say, well, Chick-fil-A can have a religious test and say, we only want to hire, you know, white Christian young people to work for us? We, if you're if you're not white, if you're not Christian, you know we don't want to hire you. I mean, there are people who who take it that far. So the question is, you know, where on the pendulum, you know, do we finally draw the line as far as what we can or cannot, um, you know, how we structure, you know, how far we go with can you discriminate? Um, now. You understand that as we, as we deal with these battles in the real world, sitting here today, I think most of us would reject the notion that equates um, gay rights or discrimination against gays with discrimination against blacks on the basis of race. I think most of us you know, we haven't felt like it's the same thing. And that, it, you know, it, we don't... I certainly never felt it was legitimate uh, claim that this was the same thing. But you know what? Regardless of what you believe or what I believe, increasingly that perspective has come to dominate in the thinking in our country. And what we're hearing more and more of from um, our kids' generation is the church has always discriminated and has always used religion as a basis to discriminate. You know, religion, the South used religion first to justify slavery and then to justify Jim Crow, and now the church is using religion to justify oppression of gays. And, you know, regardless of, of whatever happens with the laws, there are many thoughtful Christians who are concerned that we have lost a generation because of our insistence on a, a law-based approach to morality, and the, and the next generation, by and large, just isn't buying it. And this is not just a phenomenon within Adventism. It's within the broader church throughout the country. Um, so I, I guess what I'm saying is, I, you know, I don't have any particular easy answers on, and, and I'm not part of the, the in-group negotiating uh, the details of fairness for all, my primary concern, even though I'm a lawyer, is for the gospel, is that how we as a church represent Jesus and, and especially our young people, how we 
you know, present Christ in a way that will encourage our young people in a relationship with Jesus. Go ahead. I, I don't know if I came close to... You know, there are those who do, like, you know, media training that say you always stick to your own bullet points and don't ever bother answering the person's question. But I've always thrown out that advice. And, yeah, I may have my own bullet points, but I always try to be fair to somebody's question. I don't know how well, you know, I accomplish that, but I try. Good, good to see you, Kim. I just want to answer the question that you asked Jerry Page. Being a Hispanic in the Central Valley from Fresno, um, being in that community and context for more than 30 years, understanding their struggle and being part of the culture as well myself, I can tell you as a church, there is a lot of fear. There is a lot of anxiety. I have mentored youth, Adventist and non-Adventist that have been weeping. I'm talking college students. Weeping. Because they don't know if they are leaving. And want to even give up because of their situation and their status. And um, so the it's real. It, and the reason I'm really happy I'm here today is because this week... Um, Jose Cortez, um, which is our NAD um, ministerial pastor, actually um, Facebooked a whole list of options that we as a church can be more interactive into this space of how we can help. But I think the conversation, beginning the conversation, I think is the first good step. Um, I also think that um, coming together with both congregations, Hispanic and the dominant culture, would be another ideal space. Why? Because again, of what you said, Ellen, that us and them, the us and them mentality um, is very strong. And so, when we become an us, like the Bible says. I think that we will be able to see each other more um, as in the face of the divine created in the image of God in each one of us. So I just want to say thank you. Um, and I'm thankful that I'm here today. Um, but I just want to let you know it's real. And um, I have actually one young person, and I want to, I'm going to name him because I think I want to make sure that um, we're aware that it's, it's real. His name is Sergio. And he wants to become a doctor, but he's unable to afford medical school at Loma Linda. He got a full ride to Fresno Pacific University because he has the academic stamina to be there. But because of our uninvolvement and un- our willingness to help our DACA students, none of our Adventist institutions provide for them. And I thank God that other Christian universities are opening the doors for our students. So the conversation needs to even go to other spaces within our Adventist circles. The Facebook post that you mentioned, please would you somehow share that with me? 
Of course. So I can see what that is. Definitely do that. Um, two thoughts. One, going back to what you said. You used the term illegal to describe a person. And to, to try to say it as kindly as I can, that offends me. Um, people may be undocumented. They may not have legal status, but they're people. They're not. I don't like calling people illegals. I don't think that's, I, you know, we're all, we're all children of God. Whatever their immigration status, so they're, you know, they, anyway, that's, that's kind of a, a quibble perhaps. But you reminded me, you know, several years ago, before the Trump era, um, there was Sheriff Joe. Remember Sheriff Joe in Phoenix, Joe Arpaio? Uh, they enacted some very harsh restrictive immigration laws in Arizona. One of the outgrowths of that were several new churches, Adventist churches, in Nevada and Utah populated by those who had fled from Arizona. And I have had that confirmed now by officials. Um, uh, I'm trying to think. Yeah, at least two uh, both former and current officials from Nevada Utah conference, and probably more than two if I thought about it. Um, but I dare say that when we were having a discussion at an Anglo church in Arizona, in Scottsdale, and we were having a Sabbath school on the subject of who is my neighbor, we found considerable resistance from the brethren to seeing their Latino fellow church members as their neighbor. So yes, there is certainly work to be done within our own community. And, um, you know, if the criticism of this morning has any validity that I was kind of presenting one side of the story... I hope this afternoon it's been pretty clear that we've talked about um, how we properly are neither the left nor the right, that there is intolerance and problems on both sides, uh, and that we're really not talking about either political parties or specific political solutions. Um, We're really looking at this, you know, the, the bottom line is the spirit of grace and the spirit of Christ and how we as a church model and live that grace in a very confusing time of, of culture war, of prevailing intolerance. Um, looking at the clock, I'm, I'm inclined to go ahead and, and wrap it up, but I'm reminded of something. John Graz was our um, General Conference Religious Liberty Director for most of the time that I have served and uh, was very inspirational for me. He was the kind of leader that if he said jump, I would say how high. And sometimes I got into trouble when I did that. But, you know, I was, you know, I just thought the world of John. And he had, uh, he's a Swiss gentleman. I can't do his accent. But, you know, he was fond of, of answering the challenge that we get in religious liberty that well why do you you know why do you work for religious liberty doesn't the persecution have to come before Jesus comes and you know don't we want Jesus to come 
And, and he would answer that challenge this way. He would say, my brother, my sister, if you want the persecution to come before Jesus comes, there are many fine countries I can recommend to you. You can have all the persecution you want. You don't need to wait for it. And I think you could see from the presentation that that is certainly, uh, that is certainly correct. So when we work for religious liberty, what we're really doing is we're trying to lift up the character of Jesus. Because Jesus, you know, he gave his life to save everyone, even if everyone won't be saved. But he certainly secured salvation for everyone. And he regards everyone as his children. And, And we need to learn to regard everyone as our brothers and sisters. They just don't know it yet, right? So... That's, that's really the bottom line for me. Um, far more, do I have political opinions? Uh, you do, and I do too. Yes, of course we do. But I don't, I don't think you've heard too much of my political opinions today. I, I try to keep them out of my ministry as much as possible. And, and let, me, let me clarify something too. You know, because my comment this morning, you know, are these children our Jews? Um, if, if you'll wait two seconds, we'll have prayer to close, all right? Uh, I know we've gone, we've gone too long, but yeah, let's close. Uh, what, what I meant, I didn't, I didn't mean to take sides in the debate over the, con, you know, are they concentration camps or whatever. That was not the point. The point is, you know, our complacency and the kind of incrementalism, where is this going? And are we just going to sit back while children are suffering, and is this going to be like, you know, the Germans ignoring how the Jews were ostracized in, at, at that time? All right, let's have a word of prayer. Pastor, would, would you close us with prayer? Sure. Yeah, sure, you want to come together to pray, um, just especially as we've heard about persecution around the world and we're talking about issues where people are are hurt. Uh, we want to pray for those people and pray for God to work in their lives. But thank you again for taking the time to be here and to minister to our church and to give us insights. That's very helpful. Let's pray. God, I can't imagine how much your heart breaks on a day-to-day basis just thinking of the suffering that takes place around the world. We saw just a few pictures of it today to see the suffering that people have gone through because of the the hatred that exists. God, thank you that you came and you lived and you died to do away with that throughout eternity. And God, I pray for everyone around this circle that you would make us agents of change, that we would be filled with the Holy Spirit, that we would love in a way that comes close to those who are hurting, who are broken, and that we would know how to advocate for uh, changes that, that look out for, for the pain that's in your heart, for each individual that's suffering. Um, Father, thank you for the religious freedom that you have given us, and we pray that you teach us how to continue to live for that. And Father, pour out on us the Holy Spirit that will fill us with love, that will cast out all fear, I pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.